Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As we come to the end of the book of Isaiah, if you turn to chapter 65, we'll take the final two chapters, a study that we started in November, if you can imagine that, of 2019. Uh, So we've been journeying for the better part of a year and a half through these 66 books of this amazing, amazing 66 chapters of this amazing book. We finally get to the end, and we get to the book of Revelation in the book of Isaiah. We get to the very last words that are spoken by the prophet Isaiah as he writes to the children of Israel to concern their end. In other words, their final end. Not just their end as they would be facing the... Babylonian onslaught, and they'll be taken captivity and go off into go off to Babylon for seventy years. But Isaiah looks out into the future to a time that's still ahead of us tonight, a time that we call the Kingdom Age, and a time that uh, we still look forward to together with those who are still on this earth. And so, I pray you will be blessed. And as we wrap up tonight. Uh, that you be encouraged and strengthened and also challenged. Because as you look at the end of the book of Isaiah, you're going to find that it is almost identical to the end of the book of Revelation. It has the same basic truth contained in it. And so God in the Old Testament was reminding everyone to make that choice this day, whom you will serve, whether you're going to serve God and live or whether you're going to serve the enemy and die, the choice is yours. And so let's pray, and we'll pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 65 as we finish the book of Isaiah. Father, we thank you for the amazing truths of your word. Lord, we can only imagine what the prophet Isaiah himself was feeling and thinking as he authored these words by the Holy Spirit some 2,700 years ago and got a glimpse into the future, which is still future to us tonight. And so we pray that the truths contained here would pierce our hearts and affect our lives and cause us to live lives that are indeed looking for and hastening the glorious appearing of our great God and King, that we would live each day with eternity in mind, not selfishly focused on self, but focused on others, looking for the lost sheep, the one out of the ninety and nine. And so, Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us and pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, chapter 65, For I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And I said, Here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So he opens up this last two chapters by saying something that should strike you a little bit. He actually speaks a truth because the nation that he's referring to 
that was called by his name is the nation Israel. The 12 tribes of Jacob, they were now known collectively as Israel, governed by God. And so it's very clear that God speaking prophetically into the future that would come, he would call a people who were not called by his name. That would be the entire Gentile world. The age of the Gentiles, the age of grace. And we're going to see as God unfolds his plan for the last days, that indeed he did cry out to Israel. Israel rejected him. But God did not reject Israel. He put them aside. He said, look, I still love you. I still want you. You're still my chosen people. You're actually still my elect. And ultimately, you are going to come to know who Messiah is. But in the intervening time we call the age of grace, I am going to be found by a people who were not seeking me. You see, the rest of the Gentile world at that time were what we affectionately call pagan nations. They worshipped false gods, false gods of a lot of different kinds. They worshipped, in a sense, in a lot of ways, what we would call collectively evil. It was very, very, very horrible what the nations that surrounded Israel did in the worship of their false gods. And so God speaking through Isaiah says, I'm going to call out to a nation that is not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Now he goes back to speaking of his own children who would walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. You remember what happened during the time of the conquest? specifically the book of Judges, this repeated phrase often over and over and over again, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. We have a choice every day to either do what God says or do what we think. Do what's right in our own eyes or to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. No people on earth at that time had had so much contact with the true and the living God. These are people who have a temple. These are people who have the commands, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of Moses. They now have what we would call the prophets, some of the wisdom literature. God had been speaking to the Jewish people like he had spoke to no one else on the planet earth but they still wanted to do what they wanted to do. And so God says, I am going to set you aside for a time. I'm going to let you have your way. I'm going to give you free will. You can wander as you wish. I'm not going to abandon you, but I am going to seek and save the lost, period. According to their own thoughts, of people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't just kind of start wiping out nations of the earth that reject him? There's a real easy answer to that. As you age in Christ, it becomes very clear the reason that God doesn't do that, and it's you. You have to look at your own life and say, were it not for God's grace, I also would have been lost. I've had the privilege, many of us, most of us in this room, had the privilege of 
calling America our home, a country where it's pretty easy to live a Christian life, certainly easier than most of the rest of the world. We have it easy in that sense that we can be Christians. Now people will say, well, we're being persecuted. There is no one in America that is alive today that is a Christian that can say they are persecuted as a Christian in this country. They can say they don't like what's going on. They can say it's even godless or unkind. They can make all kinds of claims about whether we should do things one way or another way based on God's word, but being persecuted, we are not. Persecution is when your life is forfeited for what you believe. Persecution is you can't buy groceries because you're a Christian. Persecution is you can't go to the well to get water because you're a Christian. Persecution is if your children are found to be Christians, they'll be murdered in front of your own eyes. That's persecution. Persecution is you can't own a Bible. That's persecution. And so God is making a distinction here. He says, who will sacrifice in the gardens and burn incense on the altars, who sit among the graves, who spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh. Well, who could eat swine's flesh at that time? It certainly wasn't the Jewish people. It was the Gentile people. So God's saying, I'm going to call out of the Gentile world a people for myself. And the broth of the abominable things is in their vessels. The abominable things there is actually the things that God said they couldn't eat. You know, like lobster and shrimp, bacon, everything that tastes good. (laughs) Who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke to my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. God looks at the people of the world and says, out of people that aren't seeking me, people that don't naturally gravitate towards me, I'm going to call a people unto myself. And I think it brings into view for us that God's delay is not his denial. You know, people look at this passage and they begin to say, you know, well, you know, Israel missed their chance. And in a very simplified way, I think this is important for us to always remember, if God is actually sovereign, which we believe he is, I believe he is, I believe God is absolutely 100% totally sovereign over all things. Every moment of every day. But just because God can do something does not mean God will do something. And just because God doesn't do something doesn't mean he can't do something. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you have to be very careful what you assign to God. In that sense, God can only have three answers to everything. doesn't matter what you're talking about. He can answer in the affirmative. In other words, a positive affirmation in some way. I'll give you an example of that. You're praying for your unsaved loved one. God answers, that person goes forward, they give their life to Jesus, they're baptized. That's an affirmative yes. Amen? He could also answer no, that same loved one does not go forward, does not confess Christ, and they never do that for out through their entire life. It's pretty clear in that sense that although God did not cause them to reject him, God certainly knew they would, but God didn't 
tell you anything other than no, they're not going to get saved by what happened. So there's a negative affirmation there. But in between those two things is the other answer, the third one. And it's the one that we have to always keep in view. Just because God has not said yes, does also, has he has not said necessarily no. He just hasn't said yes yet, and he hasn't said no yet, so he's saying wait. Something's going on, you don't know, Jeff. Something's going on in the world that needs to happen. And so that is true in this passage Many people have concluded that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus when he came, that was it. It was over. There's no possibility for them to be saved. In fact, they they often hang the crucifixion of Christ on the Jewish people. Let me be very clear. The Jewish people are not responsible for Jesus' death. I am, and so are you. So were the Romans, as were the Jewish people, All who call upon the name of the Lord today were in that group of people who cried out to Jesus, we don't want Jesus, give us Barabbas, before you met Jesus. And so in this picture that we have here, there was a remnant of people inside of the city of Jerusalem that were crying out to the Lord. They wanted things God's way. But God allowed some other things to happen to them that were very unpleasant. God was going to call out from among his people another nation, among the Gentile people. And Jesus himself in Matthew 22 alludes to this whole process. There in verse 37 says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. You're not willing. And so Jesus gives a little bit of insight to what will happen. So your house is left desolate to you. Notice Jesus doesn't reject them. Just says you're unwilling to come. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until. Circle that word in Matthew chapter 22. Until. Jesus isn't saying no. Jesus isn't saying yes at that moment. Jesus is saying until. That's the wait. Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's only one way you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and that's someone who's committed their life to Jesus Christ. Now, you can mouth the words, but it doesn't mean anything unless Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Master. Jesus is Savior. And so the Lord turns his attention for the intervening 2,000 years that we call the Age of Grace to reaching out to the Gentile world, saving those who will come, Seeking out the lost one. Leaving the 90 and 9. You can apply that in a loose way to Israel. They were God's chosen people. There's 90 and 9. He's going to now go after the Gentiles one at a time. And he does the same thing in a practical way in humankind in general. God's a lover of the one. The one lost sheep. He wants those who want him. And he puts forth effort to find them. Israel was going to pay a great price for the rebellion 
And in some ways this is sad, but it's also hopeful. Essentially, Israel had become an irritant to God. Notice how it ends. These, these are smoke to my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. I don't know how many of you have done a lot of camping. I've done a lot of camping in my life. And one of the things that you learn when you're a backpacker is that sitting close to the fire also keeps the mosquitoes away. But after a couple of hours sitting near to a fire with your head in the smoke, you can't see a thing. Not because your eyes are burned, because the smoke is just irritated to the point that your eyes are watering. And it's just like, okay, i got to go to bed now. God kind of looks at this like the irritant that is the smoke. He wants to draw the children of Israel to him, but they're so busy being what they shouldn't be that it's become an irritant. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence. I will repay, even repay into their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned up incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. And therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. Until you have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you bear the cost of your own sin. Let me repeat what I said. Until you receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you will have to pay the price for your own sin. Romans 6.23 is clear. The wages of sin is death, but the contrast is the free gift of God is life eternal in Christ Jesus. So you have a choice. It's either life or death. It's Jesus pays the price or you pay the price. And so God is saying, he's he's reminding them, look, if you want to keep doing these things, because I've given you free will to, to validate your love, love's not real unless you can choose to not love. Any of you that have been married for very long, you know that you choose to love your spouse. Your spouse, on some days, is not necessarily worthy of that love. We do dumb things. We say things we shouldn't. There was a moment, maybe there was a a conflict in the home. Something was said or done. You who have a spouse know that in order for your love to be validated, you love all the time. Amen? Amen? Good times, bad times, in between times. It is the love that validates. And so that love has to have a choice to also not love. Otherwise, it's not really love. If you just force somebody into doing nice things for you or obeying you, that's why obedience is not the same as love. You can be completely obedient and not love God. Did you know that? You can be so scared into God's holiness that you can just, well, I'm just going to do it because he could kill me. That's not the same as love. And so God is expressing this to him. He says, this is what you guys are doing, and therefore I'm going to measure your own work into your bosom. Thus says the Lord, as a new wine is found in the cluster. In other words, new wine, the grape juice itself, is in the cluster of grapes. And one says, do not destroy it. For the blessing is in it, so I will do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. God says, here's what you did. This is my response. I know that in this cluster of grapes, there's still something good worth saving. I know that who you are is not expressed in just these things that you're doing that I have every right to punish. I'm not going to punish them to the extreme. But they are going to cost you something. 
I will bring forth the descendants from Jacob, from Judah. And so again, notice the context here. This is not speaking forward to saved believers, people who are found in Christ. This is very clearly from Judah, an heir of my mountains, my elect shall inherit, and my servant shall dwell there. It's speaking of national Israel. And so this prophecy is towards the elect of God who are also Jewish. Matthew 24 clarifies this. Jesus himself was, was saying, look, there, there is going to come a time when Israel is going to truly turn to the Lord. And to try and turn this into a, some form of replacement theology where the church is interjected here is just plain biblical nonsense. It is not true. You cannot force the church into this verse. It's impossible. Context denies it flatly. And so this is speaking of God's plan for national Israel. And you can look back at the history of the Jewish people and say, God made good on what he said. He, he was going to chastise them. He was going to send them uh, out. And he was going to turn them away for a time while they're sorting all these things out. And in that intervening time, you have all these incredibly horrific things that happened to the Jewish people, but God didn't allow them to be wiped out. You can interject in there all the way up to the Holocaust, Spanish Inquisition, the persecution of the Jews during the Middle Ages, the Jewish people that were kicked out of the land during the time of the Crusades. It's, it's all, all of those things inclusive. The hatred even to this day, of the Jewish people. Basically, God is saying, I am going to save you, for there's a blessing in you. In this cluster of grapes, there is fruit worth saving. You're going to come to know me. And by the way, the Apostle Paul actually quotes from these verses, and he quotes correctly the context. So if you want a commentary on it, it's found in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. A blindness has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes from this particular passage. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He'll turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. That would be the Jewish people. That's not the church. That's clearly Israel. For this is my covenant with them. With who? Jacob. I will take away their sins. Paul then tells us how. Concerning the gospel. They're enemies for your sake. Whose sake? The Gentiles. God allows the Jewish people this wandering through the last 2,000 years of history. That's actually been a benefit to the Gentile world because during that time, Gentiles by the millions, perhaps billions, have become believers in Christ Jesus. So we benefited while Israel was in their wandering. God's not done with his elect Israel, and he's going to make good on his promises that he made to them. Paul goes on to say, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who's become his counselor, who's first given him. And basically he says, these things which I promised concerning their election, I will see through. 
Why is this important to us? Because God still has a plan for Israel while he's working out his plan for the Gentiles. You can't separate those two things. We're we're attached at the hip, if you will. That's why we as New Testament believers should have a love for the Jewish people. They're still God's chosen. And he has a plan. And it's a good one. And they that bless them, God blesses. And they that curse them, God curses. It's not a good thing to be on the wrong side of God. Amen? Verse 10, Sharon, the valley of, or the valley or plains of Sharon, beautiful plains. As you travel north, as you, as you leave out of modern-day Tel Aviv, Jaffa, and you head north along the coast, and as you would come to Caesarea Maritima on the coast, which was the Roman port city, which Paul was held in captivity in Caesarea for nearly two years, and he appears before Festus, and he's brought out each day, and they, you know, they kind of grill Paul there in the theater where we stand, we go there, and usually have a Bible study inside that theater where Paul was literally put on trial. That is on the edge of the plains of Sharon. And so this beautiful area uh, to the north of the port city of Jaffa shall be for a fold of flocks. The valley of Achor is a place for herds to lie down, for my people have sought me. And it is still pastoral to this day. It's a farming area. It's a kind of a ranching. You'll see sheep along the side of the road. You'll also see tilapia farms and a few other things. There's a few modern conveniences in there. But the Lord speaks of this area. He says the the plains or the valley of Sharon will be as a place for herds to lie down. Up until 1948, this was a barren sand desert. It was kind of a windswept coastal plain that had nothing in it. You travel there today, and you're going to see the beauty that God speaks of. It's actually flower farms. But you are those who forsook the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, who furnish drink, the offering for many. That's the God of luck, by the way. So if you ever want a verse that kind of speaks to the issue of who should be at casinos, it's people whose God is luck. Therefore, I will number you for the sword. And you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. But when I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes, and chose that which, in which I did not delight. And therefore, says the Lord your God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but shall be ashamed. My servant shall sing songs, joy of the heart, But you'll cry for sorrow of heart. You'll wail in grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord your God will slay you and call his servants by another name. The Bible plainly teaches that when you reject God, there is a price to pay. Rebellion has a high price. And nobody should want to pay it. God reaches out with grace. God reaches out with mercy. He reaches out to us by saying, turn this way versus that. 
He speaks into your life by, by the Holy Spirit, primarily through the Word of God. And as he speaks those words, we're supposed to turn towards him. And so for the Jewish people, they were warned, look, if you keep on this path, it's going to be painful. People will die. Sin causes death. Sometimes people will ask me, well, how come people die? Because the wages of sin is death. It's literally death. You die because of sin. Through one man, sin entered into the world. Adam's sin induced what we would like to loosely describe as the laws of thermodynamics. Decay becomes the reality for everything. Nothing in this world gets better with age. Everything decays. That's actually a law of thermodynamics. All things tend towards disorder or decay. Your body is one of those things in this physical world. And so the wages of sin, the effects, the compounding effects over generations of sin, is things like cancer and heart disease. The stuff that ultimately takes your life. The reason that our minds don't last, they're, they're made out of the things of this earth. That's why when Adam first landed on this earth, if you look at the generations prior to the flood, how long did they live? A thousand years? Why? Because the effects of the wages of sin were much lighter during that time. Sin had not spread out and taken great effect. After the flood, you see the lifespan of mankind. And finally, you get to the writings of Moses. And Moses says, 70 are the number of the days of man and 80 by reason of strength. Exactly what we find in our world, the average life expectancy of a human being is a little less than 80 years old. And so God's saying, look, it can cost you. Don't choose that path. So he describes this time that's called the times of the Gentiles. It's interesting when he says servants that Isaiah is actually looking forward in time to a time where it would include the Gentile servants. You see, up to this point in time, Isaiah has already told the Jewish people that they are the servants of the Lord. That was what they were intended to be. And in fact, Jesus, as he speaks in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, he's describing that the disciples are having this argument, and Jesus kind of stops him. He says, look, here's the deal. The Son of Man did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He says, if you want to be like me, then be a servant. Well, the Jewish people at this time had kind of taken their place as the chosen uh, of God, and, and they were using it to see what they could get, what benefit would come. That's not how God rolls. God rolls by taking his people and using us to serve him in this world. In other words, we become the servants of all. And so that is found here in the days of the Gentile. In Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, they were called Christians. That word simply means small Christ or little Christs. Little windows to Jesus. In Caesarea Maritima, there in Acts 19 to 24, which I referenced already, there was, they were in that port city. The Romans controlled it. It was a hostile work environment. You, you, think, you think your job is bad? Imagine if you said anything against Caesar, that, that you would be strung up on the city docks, have your flesh peeled back, and your flesh thrown into the sea to feed the fish just for fun. 
Probably none of you have gone through that. They were called the people of the way in Caesarea Maritima. The way being the way of the cross, the way of Jesus. People who loved the Lord. Jesus called his own people disciples or followers, believers. It's, it's always been a strange thing to me that the core of the church was Jewish, but a vast majority of the followers of Christ in the early church were Gentiles. You have these Jewish evangelists preaching to a largely Gentile audience ultimately. Well, the scriptures make it very clear. Blindness in part has come upon the Jewish people. They don't see what they need to see yet. God's still speaking. He's still crying out. They should be able to read. If This is one of those things that when you look at the book of Isaiah and a casual reading of it to a Jewish person should cause some questions to come up in your mind. And I believe that that's the reason that it's here. This is almost like the Lord says, here, I'm going to hand you the New Testament in condensed form in an Old Testament book almost 700 years before Christ is born. Here you go. Here's the gospel. Here you go. Here's what's going to happen on the cross. Here's what's going to happen in the last days. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to roll. Here's how I'm going to respond. The times of the Gentiles, it's the era of time that we live in. Can I tell you the times of the Gentiles might be running down? We might be near the end. You see, God's not looking at this world and going, wow, that's really so much better. Like some in our world today say, it's like, look how far we've come. Well, I don't know how far we've come, but we haven't come far enough. I would suggest to you that if you're watching this online or if you're here in person tonight, I don't know how much longer the times of the Gentiles is going to last. I'm not sure how long the Lord's going to delay his return, his call for the church Verse 16, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. In John chapter 14, Jesus says about himself, I am the way and the the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Isaiah makes the same declaration. The only way that you can be blessed is in the God of truth. Being found in him. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. In other words, if you're actually going to say anything that means anything, it's going to be because it aligns with what Jesus said, what Jesus is, what God does. Because of the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Verse 17 is rather an isolated verse, if you will. If you look at it in its context, it's as if Isaiah takes a deep breath. He says, I'm going to push you out past the time of the tribulation, past the second coming of the Lord, for behold. And I think he's doing this 
the Lord is speaking to him through the Holy Spirit to kind of set the stage for what happens in the final chapter, in chapter 66. It says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Does that sound like some other book that you know of? Those are the exact words of the book of Revelation, aren't they? The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's also the words of Peter. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's saying, look, you better get your focus right. Because we as people, and rightly so, let's just confess that the things that are right in front of us are usually the most concerning to us. Amen? So if you've got a problem, maybe there's something going on with your finances, that's going to occupy your mind. It's right there in front of you. So it's not unnatural for us to think about things that are directly in front of us. But the fact of the matter is, what's directly in front of us are not the whole story. It's not even close, actually. There is eternity. And there are eternal things. And those are the things that ultimately will matter. So he goes out beyond. He says, look, get your focus back on the things that are eternal. Notice in verse 17, there in the first half of the verse, he says, I create a new heaven and a new earth. He's using a Hebrew word there. That's the same word that's used in Genesis. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's not asa, it's bara. And the reason that's important is because bara is making something out of nothing. Asa is to take what is already there and to create something with what already exists. Easy way to understand this, you go to do a project at your house and you go to Home Depot, Home Depot and you buy a bunch of stuff, you are asa making something. Because you took pre-existing materials and assembled them. You are not bara. You, you didn't say project B and the project was. Amen? You actually had to go swipe your ATM card and buy some tools and some glue and some nails. And you go home and make your project. Only God. Only God can create from nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He's the one that makes a new heaven and a new earth. Peter, seeing this time in 2 Peter chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in a night. When the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are on it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? This world is not our home. Matter of fact, the millennial kingdom is not our ultimate home. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, some of you are sitting there with you know, a rational mind going, well, that can't happen. That's because the only thing you can think of is to create something from that which already exists. 
You're trying to figure out how a new heavens is going to be created from what already exists. You're thinking about gravitational forces. You're thinking about star systems, galaxies, star clusters, supernovas, and all those things that would occur if you started to shift around the entire universe. That's not what your Bible teaches. Your Bible teaches that one day God is going to take what exists, the totality of our reality, if you want to look at it that way, everything that you think you know tonight, and he is going to alter it in a way that it will not be like anything you have ever seen. He is going to make from nothing a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, you're going to have new bodies. You're going to have minds that are suited for that. There's going to be no sickness, no disease. There won't be war. There isn't going to be violence. There won't be death. He's going to literally create a new material realm because the old one's going to be destroyed. You see, people who think about this earth as the final stop on the journey have a really tough time with this concept. You see, I, I don't have a tough time with this concept. Why? Because I believe an eternal God sent his own son into this world to save me from my sin. And if I can trust Jesus with saving me from my sin, then I can certainly believe that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. I don't have a problem with it. If he said it, that's good enough for me. I don't have to have all the answers tonight. And I'm one of those people that likes answers. If I could figure out how it got done, I'd probably sit there and jawbone with you for a long time. Well, I think he's going to do it this way. You see, if I'm a total materialist, I look at this and I go, that can't happen. I, I become a Thomas. I'm a, I'm, I'm a doubter. It's like, oh, I don't think the Lord can do that. But the truth of the matter is, when we get to the kingdom age, we're going to think differently. We're going to live differently. We're going to act differently. And the world that we live in is not going to be like this one. You see, our minds immediately focus on things that we can remember, both the good and the bad. You know, I love thinking of backpacking trips and things that I've done and fishing and all those kind of things and vacations that we've taken. I don't like thinking of all the difficult things that I've had to do in my life. I don't like, I don't like thinking about the days when I've sat with people at bedsides and watched someone pass away that they love. I am really thankful for that new heaven and new earth where all of those things will be remembered no more. Those former things will not come to mind. The good and the bad. I can't wait. I'm not going to be able to remember my you know, backpacking trips in the Sierras, but I'm also not going to remember when I buried a four-year-old that got shot in the head in his front yard. I'm not going to remember it anymore, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I'll trade not remembering the good things for also not remembering the bad things, the horrible things. Any day, any day God wants to remake this world, I'm golden. But let's go. Don't get too stuck to this earth. Because it's not staying. Don't put your hope and trust in the things of this life because it's not the end. 
He goes on to describe these conditions during the millennial age, a thousand-year reign before he remakes the, makes this new heaven and new earth. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing in her people, a joy. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and joy for my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Nor, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner being one hundred years old shall seem accursed. Now if a person dies being a hundred years old, you say, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a long time. Not in the kingdom age. It'll be even better when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. Hallelujah. Right now, I can't imagine living in this tent for that long. Seriously, I know some of you can say amen to that. It's like, amen. It's like, you, it's like I'm not even going to be able to get out of bed. Make it to 100 years old to do what? It kind of becomes purposeless after a while, doesn't it? I'd love to not think about getting, you know, and I, I know some of you can identify this. You know, what was wrong with our parents? Why did they encourage us to rub cocoa butter on our bodies and lay out on the beach? We barbecued our skin. Now we have skin cancer. You know, we got melanoma. Oh, it felt good when you were 20, and it's going to kill you when you're 60. No more of that. That stuff's gone. I can't wait. You know, sometimes little kids will talk to me and they'll go, oh, what about the dinosaurs? And I go, I can't wait to see what's in the new heavens and new earth. You know, I wouldn't mind having a T-Rex around as long as it doesn't eat me. <laughs> the foot-long cockroaches, you can keep those. That's the... We live through that kingdom age. We get to the other side. We have a vastly superior life compared to the one that we currently live in, in every shape, form, and fashion. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, what body will we have? How are the dead raised? What will they be like? All I know is they're going to be way better than the ones we currently have. Now, I don't know how many of you, you know, like the Hummer, but, you know, it's kind of one of those vehicles that I think most guys look at it and go, that's really cool. They made an electric one. I'm looking at that thing. It goes like 0 to 60 in like 3.4 seconds. I'm thinking that's way better than the old Hummer that used to burn four gallons of gas getting there. It's kind of like that with the new heavens and the new earth. You know, there are things that we can look at. When you travel to Yosemite Valley, the first time you come through the tunnel and you look at the valley on a clear day with Bridal Veil Falls and you're looking down at Half Dome and El Cal, you're going like, oh, amazing. Now imagine God just for kicks, just because he can, just because he loves us. Because he's creative. He's unbelievably diverse and colorful. He created sound. He created sight. He created the visible wavelengths that we see light and colors with. 
Can you imagine what God could do if he were actually trying to blow us away? If he created places like Yosemite, just kind of, you know, it's like, well, I'll make Yosemite. That'll be okay. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and a new you. We ought to be pretty excited about that, church. All I know is our new bodies, I'm going to be really pleased with it. Hallelujah. Can't wait. I'm like, yep, uh, whatever it is, it's going to be the new model. It's going to go zero to 60 really fast. Amen. All the stuff that we think about is primarily conjecture when it comes down to the truth of God's word. Because all we have is this physical world to think on. It's very tough for us to think past the physical world. So it's a slight on no one that we can't figure it out. But we have to leave God gone. Verse 21, they'll build houses and inhabit them. You know, now our world that we live in, we build houses and somebody else gets them, amen? You know, metaphorically speaking, you spend your whole life working and, you know, all of a sudden something happens and you don't get the blessings of those things. She'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They'll not build in another and have it. They'll not plant in another eat. For as the days of the tree, so shall the days of my people. Now, I don't know how long that is. But it seems to be leaning out there towards the more like eternal things. My elect shall enjoy a long work of their hands. Actually going to enjoy it. You're not, you're not going to go, whatever you do in the new heavens, the new earth, the millennial reign of Christ, you're not going to wake up in the morning, oh man, i got to go into work today. It's going to be, yes! I get to go do this. It's going to be awesome. God's going to meet me there. We're going to walk in the cool of the day. I love, when I think on these things, God is going to be with us. We're not going to be separated by what we call the natural world and the spiritual world anymore. They're going to be blended together in that sense. There's going to be one realm and we're all going to be, can you imagine that? Right now we can't see angels and all of those things. One day. They'll not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble. Oh, praise the Lord. If you've got a prodigal, if you've gone through that pain, if you've lived with that anguish, that will never happen again. Never. For they shall be as the descendants blessed of the Lord and offspring for them, and they shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear and the Wolf and the lamb will feed together. Imagine that happening today. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. I don't know how you are, but I, you know, I, I almost can't watch those things anymore where some lion runs down a gazelle. or I just can't do it. It's just like, I feel bad for the gazelle. I actually feel bad for the lion. It's like, oh, the lion's got a, you know, it's like terrible. I'm kind of looking forward to vegan lions. It's just like, yeah, there he is, grazing, just like everything else. What it says. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. And they'll not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. I can't wait. I don't want to see it anymore. Beautiful kingdom age. As we sang a hymn tonight, you know, I was thinking of 
This is my father's world. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. You know, we just, we're, we're so limited in our understanding. We, we look at the world around us and we think that's all there is, but there's so much more when we get towards the end. The earth that we live on is groaning right now, just exactly as Romans chapter 8 says, by the way. That's what's going on right now. We, you know, sometimes I think we, we come across as believers like we don't care about the environment, we don't care about this world. That's simply not true, and it shouldn't be true. We've been given stewardship of the entire earth, and we should take that seriously. But the fact of the matter is we can't save this earth. It's not going to be saved by human effort because God only made it for a time. It's got a purpose and it's got a lifespan. And the Bible says that right now it's actually groaning and in labor with birth pangs. So Paul writes there in Romans chapter 8 that one day he's going to set it free. And finally, as we get to the last chapter, chapter 66, for thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me and where is my place of rest? There is going to be two more temples, at least. There may be three. I've never been able to pinpoint either there's three, four, or five. I'm sure there's four, but I'm not sure there's a fifth one. But for sure, there is going to be a temple that Ezekiel talks about during the millennial reign. But God's saying, you know what? During that time, I'm not actually going to need a house. I won't need it. I won't need it because the whole earth will be my footstool. The Lord's going to be hanging around with us. For all those things, verse 2 says, my hands have made and all those things exist, says the Lord but on this one I will look, and on him who is poor and of contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. In other words, the Lord's going to really boil it down finally to just us and him. You know, sometimes I think the church has almost done a disservice to the God that we love and serve, and I'm not bashing church at all. I'm just saying no matter what we do in here, it really isn't going to be able to give him justice fully. And in some ways, people are put off by the way we do church. And again, this is not at all a knock on any church for any reason. It's just simply to say that no matter what we try and do, no matter what house we build, no matter how we try and worship the Lord or praise the Lord, no matter what environment we provide, you know, I, I've, got, I've had these debates with people online. It's like, well, you know, there are people who literally believe that you can't be saved if your church doesn't have pews and they aren't wood. It's because, you know, that's way too comfortable. It should cost you something when you come to church, including not being able to sit down for a week after you've sat in a wood pew. There are people that think that way. It's like, it's got you know, to be painful. And there are people who think that, you know, using any type of anything up here on the stage other than a cross. And look, I'm a, I love the cross. And we have a cross up here every once in a while. But you know what happens? Oddly, strangely, weirdly, people begin to worship stuff on the stage. They start to worship the cross instead of the Christ who hung on the cross. They, they begin to worship the way church gets done, the way it looks and the way it feels, instead of the one who occupies, whose train of his robe fills the temple and whose feet sit on this earth. 
one day God's going to fix all that. And all the differences that we have in churches aren't going to matter because he's going to literally be with his people. Again. Can't wait. To help understand that, he says, he who kills a bull is as one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is one who breaks a dog's neck. Who gathers a grain offering as he who offers swine blood and burns incense as he who blesses an idol. In other words, all of our churchy things that we might do. God isn't after those things. He's after our hearts. He's always been after our hearts. Just as they have chosen their own way and are sold delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. The Bible says that during the very last days, God's going to bring a strong delusion over people. There will be an apostasy, a falling away. People are going to flee the Lord in that sense. Jesus actually said to the Jewish people, I came in my Father's name, but you didn't receive me. Another is going to come in my own name, and you will receive him. That is exactly what Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 declares. That there will be a covenant made with Israel in the very last days. One that we call the Antichrist will rise up, and he will make a peace treaty with Israel. And that peace treaty, during the middle of the week, the final seven years of mankind's journey on this earth before the Lord returns then that treaty will be broken and that man of sin will reveal himself for who he is. God says, look, it's going to happen. In order to do that, there's going to be a temple on the Temple Mount. That's where that's going down. That's the third temple. There'll be a fourth one after that. That's the Ezekiel's temple. And so hear the word of the Lord, verse 5. You who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, and said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. And remember the apostle Paul, as he was on the road to Damascus, what was he doing? He was going to persecute the church, wasn't he? Uh, that's been the church's lot since day one. The church has never been popular. No matter whether it's the Gentile church, the Jewish church, all who are believers, the church has never been popular. It's always been persecuted to some degree, and in some places far more than others. But ultimately, the Lord's going to be glorified in us together. And the sound and the noise, verse 6, from the city, the voice of the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. You see, can I remind you that the Lord misses nothing on this earth? Not a thing. All the inequities, all the unfair things, the unjust things, the things that we struggle with, the things that pierce our souls, the struggles for righteousness, the struggles against injustice, the things that bother you also bother the Lord. You're not missing any of it. When someone gouges you for rent, when you get taken advantage of by someone who is unjust and unfair, the Lord keeps track of that. And unless they call upon his mercy by receiving him in faith and repent of their sin, the Lord repays. 
Bible is very clear. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You can trust the Lord with repayment of debt that is owed. You do not need to seek that payment yourself. God will do it for you. He's very able. And he'll do it perfectly and justly. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before a pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. This is picturing what happened to the Jewish people. In May 14th of 1940, they were literally born in a day. They went from not being a people and not being a nation, not being Zion, to being Zion in Israel. They were born. And I shall bring the time of birth. Shall I not bring the time of birth and not also cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who caused delivery, shut up the womb, says you're gone? Basically, God's saying, look, I brought you this far. You don't think I'm going to finish my plans? I took care of you up to this date. Don't you think I'm going to complete what I said? Do you trust me? Are you willing to walk by faith? So he says, rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad in her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her. That you may feed and be satisfied with consolation in her bosom. That you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream, and then you shall feed on her sides, and you will be carried and be dangled on her knees as one whom his mother comforts, and so I will comfort you. You should be comforted in Jerusalem. This picture is a picture of the Jewish people in the land in complete peace and complete comfort. That is not the case today and never has been. Never. The city that is named Jerusalem, the city of peace, has never been the city of peace. It has always been a city of conflict. It was a city of conflict when the the original conquest took place and the Jebusites inhabited that land along with the Canaanites. And Israel had to fight. And they fought and they fought and they fought. And the Moabites and the Amorites, the Gershites, all these people that lived around them, it was battle after battle after battle after battle, and they'd finish one battle, and another battle would happen. The Assyrians would come in conquest, followed by the Babylonians in conquest, followed by the Romans in conquest, and then they would be kicked out of the land and not return until 1948. And so when you go to Israel today, it's not a peaceful place. It's very safe, but you can see the tension. The tension between Arabs and Jews. The tension between these international powers, the UN troops, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, the Jerusalem Police Department. You can see the Quaf, the 
Islamic ruling government that governs the Temple Mount. They're all in conflict. Just to open the doors of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You've got eight different churches that get together to open the door of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They all have to talk to each other every day just to get the door open. It's so bad that if you look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I'll challenge you to do this when we're in Jerusalem, and you look up about the middle of the building on the front side as you're in the courtyard, there is a ladder that was used for construction in the 1600s that is still there because no one can agree whether it should be taken down or left up. It's not a city of peace. But it will be when the Prince of Peace comes. When he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two and there's a river that goes from east to west exactly as Ezekiel says, then it will be a place of peace. But you shall be comforted in Jerusalem when you see this. Your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. Right now, the Lord's been gracious, kind. He goes along with all this insanity that goes on in the Middle East. It's crazy. No, no place in the world is as armored up as that region of the world. One of the things that strikes you when you're in the, in the land of Israel is you, you realize how close Israel's enemies are. Where, where they're baptizing in the River Jordan, and you have the Israeli defense forces on one side of the river and the Jordanian army on the other side of the Jordan River. Right across from each other. You can throw rocks at each other. Armed grenade launchers, automatic weapons. You know, because you never know what might happen at a baptism. Somebody might dunk and somebody might sprinkle and, you know, a war could start or something. The Lord has indignation against his enemies. And ultimately, when you don't repent, then the Lord says, okay, you got it. I'm going to give you what you want. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. And so he now moves back into the future to the time of the second coming. His chariots like a whirlwind and render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord shall judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Not a pretty picture, is it? Can I remind you, this is exactly how the book of Revelation ends. It's identical. Read chapter 19 to chapter 22, the book of Revelation. You can look at it later. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves go to the gardens after an idol in the midst and they're eating swine flesh and the abomination and a mouse. So they'll be consumed together. In other words, there's going to be saints and ain'ts. There's going to be people in and people out. There's going to be sheep and goats. That final last day's harvest when the Lord says, look, it, it's over. The age of grace is done. You've got to make a choice and you need to make it right now. For I know their works. I know their thoughts. And I will gather together all nations and tongues, and they shall come to see my glory. You know, the Lord came the first time as a lamb, didn't he? Next time he's coming as the lion. 
He came the first time to give his life. He's coming the second time to bring righteousness and rule and reign on this earth. Second time he comes, he's not playing. The first time when he came, he came to be that sacrifice for our sins. The next time he is going to exact vengeance. And people don't, you know, sometimes we, we, we have a tough time. I have a tough time. Let's make it clear. I have a tough time sometimes. It's like, does the Bible really say that? Yes, it does. And I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't remind you of those things. But I will set a sign among them, verse 19, and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations to Tarshish, to Pool and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan. So this is talking about Europe to the coastlands afar off that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. This is the final harvest of the very last days. It's like, one more time. That's how good God is. And then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all the nations, on horses and chariots, litters and mules and camels, to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. And so you can see the attachment to chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation. The second coming of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord gathers together all nations and they come and they're arrayed against the Lord. They're in the valley of Jehoshaphat, Megiddo, to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord. And as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel unto the house of the Lord, the only way to bring a clean vessel in the house of the Lord, because there's no temple, is to be clean yourself, to be saved. And I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. And as for the new heavens and new earth, which I will make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, that all flesh shall come and worship before me, says the Lord. Now, I will tell you that I would like to end the story there, but there's one more verse. God clears it all up, the battle of Armageddon. He makes a distinction, but that's not where it ends. There is a verse 24. And sometimes, I will tell you, I much prefer to teach about grace and preach about grace and to talk about God's goodness and his love which absolutely God is good and absolutely God is love and absolutely God desires all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of repentance, but God absolutely is holy. And there absolutely is a hell. And so you have to make a choice as to whether you want to spend eternity with God or whether you want to keep what you already have, which is hell. And they will go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die, and they shall be in abhorrence of all flesh. That is how the book of Isaiah ends. The choice. The choice. The redeemed that are blessed in the city of peace, those that have come to the Lord and they know him and they're worshiping him, and those who don't. Church, that's the choice that still exists today. 
That's the choice for your friends. That's a choice for your family. Revelation chapter 20 says that one day, Hades is going to give up her dead, and there's going to be a judgment at the great white throne. You see, right now, there are unrighteous dead still awaiting judgment in that singular compartment of Sheol that contains everyone who's ever rejected Jesus. But they're not staying there forever. There is a worse fate that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 25 when he said, Depart from me to Gehenna, which was prepared beforehand for Satan and his angels. When Hades was created, it was the abode of the dead. But when Gehenna was created, which is the literal hell, it was created only for Satan and his angels. That's the only beings that God envisioned going there. You have to make a choice one way or another, where you want to spend eternity. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the same type of choice that we see in the end of the book of Revelation. Don't take away from the words of this book. There is a a literal afterlife because this life is not the end of anyone's life. Everyone lives eternally. The only question is where? That choice is yours. That choice is mine. And I pray that you have already chosen life in Christ Jesus as Lord. To not choose him is to choose. It's to keep what you already have, which is a sin nature. And the wages of that sin is death. So you have to choose the free gift of life, which comes through believing in Christ Jesus. And so as you ponder this, God's final words to this as we think through these things in chapter 66 is all these eternal things that are going to come. And at the end of it, there's this choice. Choose life or choose death. Choice is yours. That's not a hard choice for me. I'll take heaven and life and joy and peace, eternal goodness of the Lord over the things that Jesus said where the worm doesn't die, a place prepared for Satan and his angels. My treasure is stored up in heaven. And I pray that's where your treasure is stored up too. All you need to do to make sure that's true is to accept Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. And then you get to spend eternity with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.